But this morning we talk about mothers. Mothers today is about uh, honoring the commitment that you all make. Uh, by God's design, mothers are in many ways the backbone of a stable society. Uh, it's understood that not every woman is going to become a mother. Uh, and certainly uh, we, we recognize in our society that a full 50% of the population uh, cannot, by virtue of the fact that we are men, become mothers. And yet, though we have um, certainly a large percentage of the population that, that are not mothers and, and will never be mothers, yet every single person in society ought to understand and recognize and fully appreciate just how important mothers are. Now, we can see that anecdotally, right? Because we look around us and um, many of us have had mothers. Some of you perhaps had absentee mothers uh, for one reason or another. But many, if not most of us, had mothers. And we can look at the influence, uh, whether for good or for ill, that mothers have had upon our individual lives. We can see uh, in, in the positive instance for many of you how your mothers um, taught and protected and fed and um, even um, buffered you for many things, how patient they were as they uh, cultivated you and such uh, in the way that you should go. And, and um, you can look back now and appreciate all of those elements of, of motherhood. For some of you, maybe uh, your, your experience with your mother was not a very positive one, uh, that there was uh, perhaps um, trials and struggles and, and she was not a good example. And yet you can look back and see nonetheless just how impacting, just how important your mother was in your upbringing. Your mother was in, in the direction that you took. Uh, and to that extent, it is a testimony to the importance of motherhood, even if uh, in, in some cases it's a testimony um, to the importance of motherhood from a negative point of view. We see this importance of motherhood emphasized in the Old Testament, but the reason why Mother's Day is, is perhaps more important in this time than it ever has been before is because mothers are less appreciated in this time than they have been, at least in our society, probably ever um, since the advent of our society as far as the United States of America is concerned. And that uh, is laid primarily at the feet of um, the devastating philosophy uh, today that pervades culture called feminism. Feminism it has been uh, poison from the beginning. Uh, many people trace feminism through three distinct waves, the first wave being in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And this is the wave that allowed women um, to become property owners. Uh, it would um, eventually become the, the uh, vehicle through which women fought for the right to vote and, and um, the right to be able to work and all of the various aspects that came within that transition being helped along greatly by uh, the two world wars and the need for women to uh, man and work the factories while all of the men were away uh, busy um, fighting the wars, uh, particularly in Europe. And so we, we saw that first wave come through and within that first wave, there was a general air of rebellion and emancipation uh, that laid the groundwork for this idea that motherhood, and this is what, what, what many feminists would claim today, that motherhood is a type of slavery, that you are uh, bound to the home, that you are bound to your children, that you are bound to the, the lives of others, and thus you cannot pursue a life of your own, that you are somehow putting your life on hold in order to pursue um, the cultivation of the lives of others. And, and in one sense, um, that, that sentiment can be understood. 
because mothers are indeed investing in the lives of others. But in another sense, it's absolutely false, and we'll see that as we continue through uh, our teaching today. Then you had second wave feminism, and within the scope of second wave feminism, which was generally 50 to the 50s to the 70s, 1950s to 1970s, uh, there was a, a significant push in that time for the sexual liberation, um, uh, bringing women onto the scale of, of um, uh, how unbelieving and wicked society would view men, whereas the unbelieving and wicked society would view um, the, the immorality and the exploits among men as something uh, of, a, of a badge of honor. In, in some senses, uh, yet among women it was a badge of shame, and thus they tried to change that, and uh, I, I think that, that that should have been changed as well, in that, as with any other decent society, it should have been a badge of shame among when, men, as it was a badge of shame among women, and by the way, it was within decent society, within uh, religious society, within the church and such, it always has been, and yet instead, what women sought to do is flip it the other way around, to wear that badge of shame was taken away from women uh, so that they could be immoral, so that they could be promiscuous, so that they could be lascivious, so that they could um, uh, be uh, fornicators and such, and, and yet that badge of shame would be lifted from them. And naturally, if you're going to lift and strip away that badge of shame, you're also going to have to find a means by which to avert the deeper consequences of that um, those actions, namely children. Thus, the push for um, abortion and the, the, the death cult of abortion begins because of the nature of the need within a, a female sexual liberation to also liberate these women from this essential side effect, the, the essential outcome of sexual liberation, which would be conception and children. And so we see these things go hand in hand and thus bringing us to what we would call the third wave of feminism, and that uh, began in the late 1990s and into the 2000s and um, is still um, very, very potent today, although some are calling today's what today is doing a fourth wave of feminism. But the third wave of feminism uh, would be for a massive, strong push after the, the conservative swing in the 80s and into the early 90s, thanks in large part to uh, the presidency and administration of Ronald Reagan and uh, the rise of, of the religious right and such um, and Billy Graham and all of those various things and so this strong swing back um, to uh, back into the, the death cult of abortion as well as uh, this false notion of equal pay uh, where women state that they receive 70 cents on the dollar uh, for the same work which is absolutely false, statistically false, uh, um, provably false in every way I can get you those statistics if you want to contact me personally, if you've ever had to deal with that. Um, it is absolutely false um, and uh, completely disingenuous to say such things, but of course that is what is being pushed, and naturally the, all of the other elements of victimhood and mentality. Third wave feminism is the deepest uh, element here, uh, historically, of the push toward cultural Marxism. Uh, the push toward this um, communist utopian idea, the overthrow of the Western world, the overthrow of the society that is built on Judeo-Christian values in a full attempt to cast off uh, what has been God's design and the recognition of God's design in society and to fully appropriate humanism into the mix. And that is really the pinnacle of feminism 
is to bring about uh, the epitome of humanism and that man makes himself his own God. And the deepest and the greatest casualty of the feminist movement, particularly third wave feminism, has been motherhood. So that motherhood today is viewed among feminists as slavery. And they liken it to the same thing as the slavery that we would uh, recognize in the United States prior um, to the 1860s uh, when we had the Civil War and then of course the various elements with Jim Crow and such and the Civil Rights Movement um, leading to the, the, the fullest uh, r removal of the vestiges of institutional racism within our country and they would uh, liken it to the exact same issue and in doing so uh, they believe motherhood is the enemy and that motherhood is the problem and we see that pervasively so that in many uh, corners of our society today this day Mother's Day is a day of loathing is a day that that they would not desire to acknowledge is a day that they would look at as uh, a, a day of, of shame uh, as a day that shows the the lack of progress that they have made in toppling the Judeo-Christian values of our society and the reason why is because motherhood is so deeply rooted in biblical doctrine it is so deeply rooted in God's design when we talk about those elements of God's design we know we talk about male and female from Genesis that God made them male and female that's God's design we know we talk about a husband and a wife and we know that because of God's design God made it that way and we also recognize the concept of motherhood and fatherhood that God has ordained mothers and fathers we'll talk about fathers here in a few weeks uh, when Father's Day comes along uh, but for today we talk about mothers and the importance of motherhood is emphasized all throughout the Old Testament particularly through the narratives of the Old Testament we think of Ruth and Naomi and the account of Naomi going into Midian and meeting Ruth who, who marries uh, her son and then her sons and her husband die and then they end up back in Israel and and then Ruth being uh, noticed by Boaz and being redeemed by Boaz and uh, her bearing a child who grew up on Naomi's knee and the joy and the impact and the essential nature of motherhood recognizing through Naomi and then through Ruth the beginnings of what would eventually be the family of King David as David um, came from the lineage of Ruth and Boaz and we recognize in that the essential nature of motherhood and how important motherhood was in Jewish culture and we see the same thing in Hannah in the days uh, in 1st Samuel we're going to talk about her more tonight as we talk about prayer in the days of, of the judges and this final judge of Samuel and Hannah uh, who is barren and she longs for a child and of course we could go back to Sarah and, and Rebecca and and Rachel as it relates to those same concepts of desiring and longing for for a, a child and we see the same thing in the days of Hannah that she's longing for a child and uh, she is given a child by the Lord and then she she weans that child and she gives that child back to the Lord and the tremendous sacrifice and the importance of that decision as it related to the future of Israel through the prophet Samuel who would eventually ordain Saul and ordain David 
and would establish the Davidic monarchy in Israel. We know uh, from the, the promise of the virgin in Isaiah chapter 7 that a virgin would conceive and bring forth a son and they would call his name Emmanuel. And then we see that realized in Mary, who is technically still, she, we, we, we read about her in, in our New Testament, and yet they're still in an Old Testament economy at that time. And we find within that Old Testament economy, uh, Mary and the privilege that, that, that she was, uh, every generation calls her blessed. And she is blessed because she was the one who got to bear the Messiah, who got to bear this child who would take away the sins of the world. And so we see in this a unique privilege and a unique relationship whereby, particularly in the case of Jesus Christ, a unique relationship whereby Mary bears the Son of God and she is the vessel through which the Word is made flesh and dwells among us and then and yet the one who she bears would end up dying on the cross to save her from her sins, would end up being her Redeemer and her Messiah, though she bore him. And thus we see this wonderful relationship between the man and the woman, whereby man is in our society as the one who is the head and yet man is sourced in woman spending nine months literally connected to his mother in order to bring about his life by which then he takes in society that headship role. And the first example of motherhood and the nature of what motherhood is supposed to be that I would like us to consider today is in Titus chapter 2. Uh, many of you are well familiar with Titus 2 as it relates to sound doctrine and um, various, we might call them family groups or, or, or elements of the family, but more specifically elements of society in the church and in society as it relates to the elder and the younger. And in Titus chapter 2, Paul is writing to Titus as a pastor and he says in verse 1, but speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. So the call is for the elderly men that they be the, st the stabilizing leadership uh, element of society, whether that be the church society or whether that be, as we could extend it, um, secular society. The aged men be these sober, grave, temperate men, sound in faith and charity and in patience. They are the ultimate example of those things uh, to their society. Verse 3, the aged women likewise that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. And so again, the older women are intended to be and intended to reflect this idea of stability. And you see it at the beginning of verse 4 that they may teach the young women. And so they are in a position of stability. They are in a position of teaching. They are teachers. They are there to teach the young women. They are there um, to be in behavior as becometh holiness, to reflect holiness uh, to the younger generation. And in this, we see a reflection of God's character from one generation to the next. We see this as it relates to both fathers and mothers, that fathers and mothers are intended to be an example of God 
to their children, that the elderly in our society are intended to be an example of the, the highest ideals of the principles of, of the divine to the younger generation so that they are the stabilizing force because the younger generation has to learn. We have to learn who God is. We have to learn um, what God expects of us. We have to learn how, how God has designed things and that is best learned if we will accept it, uh, is best learned through education, not through learning things the hard way. And so in doing so, we see these aged women being a stabilizing force. And this is one of the first things that we recognize about motherhood, is that as a mother, a mother is a stabilizing force in the home. There are any number of wonderful things that mothers do, but a mother is a stabilizing force in the home. We know that children thrive on routine. We know that people, as a general rule, thrive on routine, that outside of routine there is uncertainty. And what mothers have historically brought to a home, regardless of the uncertainty that surrounds the home, and many of you perhaps have experienced this, where there is any element of uncertainty in the home, even the simple nature of the father going out and um, um, working and being the breadwinner and um, uh, doing uh, that, that, that part that has characteristically fallen upon the father to do, not in every case, most certainly, um, leads a, a, a bit of a transient or an inconsistent nature to the father's presence within the home as he goes out to do what is necessary to provide for the needs of his family. And yet the mother uh, has characteristically, historically, and does reflect biblically this idea of a stabilizing influence. And let me just say this as we're moving on. Uh, we, we might be tempted to say that as we look at all of the examples of mothers within the Old Testament, uh, as I mentioned, Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Leah and, and uh, Ruth and Naomi and then Hannah and, and, uh, and, and any number of the others as it might relate to David's wives and such, uh, as we see Mary reflected and then even as we look into the epistles and we see the instructions where mothers are mentioned, we might be tempted to say, well, uh, Jewish society uh, had this high regard for motherhood, which we recognize. Motherhood was, was so important to them. And uh, generally speaking, Christian society has had a very high a level of importance for motherhood, which we have recognized even through the Catholic Church uh, and then into the Reformation and into our, our Christian societies today. Uh, motherhood has generally been elevated significantly more than uh, just the general secular society as a whole. And we might be tempted to say, okay, we think motherhood is important because of the tradition of the church and the tradition of Judaism. But I, I'm convinced from the Word of God that this is the other way around. That we don't see motherhood as important because of the tradition, but rather the traditions that have been built within the Judeo-Christian community are a reflection of just how important motherhood is to God. And so we see here this stabilizing force in the home, that these aged women be in behavior as becometh holiness, that they're not false accusers, that they're not given to much wine, that they are teachers of good things, that they are thus being one to teach. And we would recognize in many of our homes that uh, though the father has an instructing element uh, to his, his job and and most certainly as delegated to the mother within the home, yet we would recognize that the primary source of teaching within the home 
will, by virtue of her access, by virtue of her devoting herself to her home, will come through the mother. And so we see that element, that element of, of stability, that element of stabilization within the home, and that element of teaching, passing on from one generation to the next those things which are essential. And we already read in verse 4, the beginning of it, that they, that would be the aged women, may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. And so not only are they a stable example uh, to, their, to their children, and um, not only do they um, teach, but they also keep, right? That they love their husbands, they love their children. Verse 5, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Love their husbands, love their children, keepers at home, discreet and chaste. And thus they create an environment, not just an attitude of stability, not just an attitude of, of behavioral example, but they create an environment of stability that is conducive to children becoming stable, that is conducive to children becoming receptive, that is conducive to children enfolding into the home for instruction rather than going out to seek instruction from others, from strangers, from those to whom it would not be due for them to receive that instruction. Thus, mothers become the very first source, the very first link to, I, I don't want to use the word tradition, they, they're the very first link to history, to the past. That as we would seek to learn from history, as we would seek to grow on that which has come before, as we would seek to establish this important element of, of taking the posterity, taking um, that which has gone before and building upon it in our society, mothers form the first essential link whereby a child recognizes that they are able to trust and to love and to find within that which has gone before them, the generation that has gone before them, the clarity and the protection and that which is necessary to then stay close, linked, stable, and then to move into their generation from a stable platform. And that's what we see here in Titus chapter 2, that this is the function of the mother within society. And may I encourage you, mothers, as you hear around you, perhaps, if you read the news or or, or hear any of modern culture, and if you don't, thank the Lord for that. Um, but if you hear those things and you're recognizing this spirit, this uh, um, uh, antagonistic spirit against motherhood within society, uh, trying to paint motherhood as if uh, there, there's something about it that is um, less than ideal, that is um, less than best, that uh, is holding you back, uh, that is getting in the way of who you are to be, Titus chapter 2, as well as what we'll see next in 1 Timothy chapter 2, um, paint a very different picture. Much to the contrary, to whatever extent you devote yourself to your children, to whatever extent you are pouring yourself into a stable, 
consistent, educational, thriving household. A place for them to be safe, a place for them to be fed, a place for them to be taught, a place for them to grow, a place for them to, to remain. You are fostering in their hearts a receptivity to doctrine, a receptivity to the faith which was once delivered to the saints. You are showing them an exemplary, the exemplary nature of sound doctrine. And you are helping, even just in that, instill a measure of sound doctrine, a clarity of mind by which they can receive sound doctrine with gladness. Don't miss out on that. Don't, don't lose sight of that. Don't forget the importance of your role in that regard. And that brings us to our second concept in 1 Timothy chapter 2. In 1 Timothy 2, um, we, we went through 1 Timothy not too long ago within our Sunday morning, so you all, most of you are very familiar uh, with this passage. And um, Paul is talking about those various elements of what is to be done in the church. And he begins in chapter 2, speaking to Timothy about supplications and prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks being made for all men. And um, then following this, calling on the women in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety. And so the call that the women be modest. Now, uh, here we speak of modest apparel. Remember that when we speak of the concept of modesty in the Word of God, it's not directly speaking of what a person is wearing. It's speaking of how a person uh, presents themselves. It's speaking of a, a deportment. Modesty, uh, the concept of, of modesty is not drawing attention to oneself. And there are any number of ways that a person does or does not draw attention to themselves, uh, and only one of them is with what they wear. Uh, the manner in which I present myself, my actions, my attitude, all of these things can be a part of how it is that I present myself. And so the women are called to adorn themselves in modest apparel. And remember that within this context, we are speaking directly of the church. Now, in, in Titus chapter 2, we spoke of the woman's, the, the, the mother's essential nature within the home. That within the home, she is creating a stabilizing, uh, teachable environment whereby the children will be able to link themselves to the concepts of sound doctrine within that, that first stable, careful, protective environment of the home. Now, then we transition to the concept of the church. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, that is Paul's focus, is the church. And so as he speaks to women in the church, he says in verse 11, Let the women learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. And so the call is that there are not women in the church. There are not women uh, usurping men is where, where, where that goes uh, and their authority within the church. There are women in the church. But there are not women usurping the authority of men in the church. They are not to be in authoritative teaching roles within the church. And Paul specifically relates this to the nature of Adam and Eve and the fall when Eve was deceived and thus partake of the fruit, and then she gave to her husband, and her husband did eat. Of course, Adam was the one who directly rebelled. Adam was not deceived. Adam knew exactly what he was doing. Adam sought for that 
opportunity to uh, take for himself this mantle of the divine to be as a god knowing good and evil he wanted that he sought unto that and of course he being the federal head of the human race it is when Adam partook of the fruit that man fell to sin and the curse would then be placed upon all mankind that being said the woman was that was deceived and that she was deceived it was a illustration of God's design that it was not upon her that it was not her right nor was it her privilege uh, to take those decisions upon herself that God had delegated headship to the man and that by her taking that decision upon herself uh, she reflected exactly why it is that God has designed for men to be in the position of headship and not for women to be in that position of headship. But notice what verse 15 says. I'll read verse 14 and 15 together. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. We talked about this again a little bit when we were in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And in any number of other translations, this will be translated in a few different ways. Um, I did notice a couple of translations where it said, uh, notwithstanding, of course it wouldn't say notwithstanding, it'll use some modern English, but it'll say something to the effect of, she shall be saved in childbearing if she continue in faith and charity uh, and holiness with sobriety. But it, uh, it does not say in the English, it does not say in the Greek, either in the critical text or in the Textus Receptus, if she continue in faith and charity, but rather they continue in faith and charity. And I have posed to you on several occasions that I believe the they there is her children. So that in other words, a woman's role in the church is saved, is redeemed, is that, that, that her role, that her function, that, that her efforts that, that everything that she pours into her children comes to fruition when she sees her children serving the Lord, when she sees her sons taking leadership positions in the church. And through that, the, the reality of her sons being leaders in the church, of her daughters um, get, getting married and, and, and taking on that, that new support role of, of, of the next generation of the church, she finds a measure of redemption and a measure of satisfaction. Or at least that's the design. And this is such an interesting thing about motherhood. Mothers, God has designed your, your role to be a very long-term role. And this is not too unlike any other major job. That when a person puts his mind and his effort into a task, the outcome of that task is its reward. That when I pour myself into a, a church, we're coming on to the 10th anniversary of Legacy Baptist Church. I've been here for almost nine of that. 10 years ago, on the first Sunday in June, uh, we Legacy Baptist Church began, and I came uh, some 14, 15 months after that. But as we come to the 10th anniversary of Legacy Baptist Church, as uh, I come in 2021 to the 10th year of my ministry, the, the joy that would well up in my heart over that would be the joy that comes from the coming to fruition of years and years and years of effort so that when I see the young people of our church going out and establishing their own homes, which uh, hasn't fully happened yet, but is, is coming in the next five 
to 10 years. And as we see that, and as we see them by God's grace walking in, in, in godliness and, and, and becoming stable and active members of their own churches and, um, and building up the church and, and uh, becoming fruitful for God's kingdom, as we see these things come to pass, that is the reward of the pastor. Now, there are any number of individual rewards along the way, but that is, that's the goal. That's the thing where you look back upon the ministry and you say, Lord, you used me. Thank you. And so many times the building effort is long-term. Well, the Bible tells us that that's the same with, with mothers. Mother, you don't get to bring home a paycheck at the end of each month for taking care of your children. You don't necessarily see all those individual uh, elements tangible in that way. You'll see your children learn to read. You'll see your children learn to write. You'll see your children make good decisions. You'll see your children grow in any number of ways, and you'll rejoice in those, those little things, but it all leads up to the day where you can look at your children and you can see them continuing in faith and charity with holiness, uh, in holy, and holiness with sobriety, and that is your, that is mission accomplished as it relates to you bringing up children and producing them to the church in the same way that Hannah weaned her child and then gave Samuel to the priest and said, I am giving this child to the Lord. I have dedicated this child to the Lord. On that day when you can say, Lord, these children have been raised for you. And that is the redemption. That is the salvation. That is the, the joy that Paul speaks of as it relates to mothers. Thus, we find that mothers don't just lay the foundation for the next generation at, uh, for, for, as it relates to stability in the home, but mothers also bring about the foundation of the next generation of the church. And this is essential. I am the pastor of Legacy Baptist Church, and I give you doctrine. I teach you what the Bible says, and then the Holy Spirit takes what the Bible says and applies it to your heart in a meaningful way, and that gives you the tools necessary in order to found your life upon, upon sound doctrine and to build it up. But mothers, you're the one that's home with your children. You're the one that is reinforcing that throughout the week. And if any of our children grow up to be stable, functional, helpful children in the church, for in, in the majority of cases, it will be in no small part because of the work that mothers have done in their children. And most certainly, this will be a vindication, a validation, a, a reward for all of the hard work you have put in. Now, as we consider these things, we recognize that the mother's role in society is absolutely incalculable. Not only is being an active and dedicated mother not a loss, it is the pinnacle of societal participation. Any stable society is built not on the backs of innovation, not on the backs of fiscal policy. A stable society is built on the backs of stable families. A stable society is rooted in mothers who see their job as important and valuable in itself. Not that you're putting your life on hold for a number of years, waiting for it to be over so that you can get back to life. 
not that uh, you are, are simply uh, there to sustain your children's uh, life and then shoving them off on other people to teach and to educate and to influence, but those of you who are willing to take upon yourself the responsibility of motherhood, it, it, is, it is beyond valuable to society. It is the very foundation, the, the backbone of stable society. As your children grow and as they fear God, that brings about in itself its own reward. And so in many ways today, mothers, I just want to encourage you to keep, keep on keeping on. To not be taken in by the spirit of this age, which would seek to lay upon mothers uh, some inferiority. To not be confused by the ideas that, that are around in culture that somehow mothers are giving up something by staying home to take care of their children. That somehow mothers are giving up something uh, by uh, devoting themselves to the, 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 these little lives rather than devoting themselves to their own ambitions, to their own ideas. Yes, you have ambitions. Yes, you have talents. Yes, you have ideas. But remember, mothers, you're not the only one who may have given those things up. Men do that too. Most men do not necessarily do what they do simply because it's what they've always wanted to do. They do what they do because it's what is best, what's right, what's needful for the family. They do what they have to do not necessarily what they want to do. And mothers, for you to do, for you to, to establish a mindset whereby motherhood is the aspiration, motherhood is the goal, motherhood is the opportunity, is right and biblical and good. And don't let the spirit of our age strip from you that which God has established. That from Titus chapter 2, Mothers form the stabilizing, the stabilization of the home, the godly and stable example and teaching within the home. That from 1 Timothy chapter 2, mothers lay the foundation for the next generation of the church. That you as a mother are, by being the best mother you can be, being the most helpful uh, and, uh, force in, in our society that you could possibly be. And to that extent, Regardless whether you're a mother or a father or just uh, unmarried, whether you have children, whether you don't have children, all of our society ought to engage wholeheartedly in Mother's Day because mothers are the very backbone of our stable society. And we need to defend and fight for motherhood. We need to seek to help others understand the importance of motherhood because if our society is to continue, if our culture is to find any sort of uh, rejuvenation at any point, it will most certainly uh, have a large part to do with the nature of how the women in our society see motherhood and the degree to which they take that motherhood seriously. So may we take it seriously and mothers may I express again as we close our message today how thankful we are for you. Typically on our Mother's Day, we'll have something in the back of the church for our mothers to take with them. Unfortunately, none of you are here um, or there or anywhere uh, together to be able to do such a thing today. But families, I hope that you will make your mothers feel special today. Mothers, I hope that you, you can see how special you are to God. 
God bless you for the work that you're doing. Don't be weary in well-doing, for as Galatians 6, 9 says, in due season, you will reap if you faint not. And let's maintain that important perspective as it relates to motherhood within the church. Let's guard that important perspective as it relates to motherhood within the church, because indeed, it is essential to our church, to our societies, and then, of course, to our families. Let's close in prayer.